Hey everyone, welcome to chapters four to six on my capital reading guide slash overview. I thought I might as well put these three together because they're relatively short and sort of connected logically speaking. I'll go over the central arguments in the main episode, obviously, and then add some additional, I think, analysis that isn't essential, but I think is relatively important in the premiums, obviously for $2 a month on patreon.com slash levegar. We've so far been analyzing basic commodity circulation, so C, M to C. There's a commodity you have, you sell it for money, and then you buy another commodity. But this is not the same as the way that capital circulates. So that's the point of essentially these three chapters. The capital circulation is fundamentally M to C to M. So it's reversed. The capital relates to buying in order to sell. So the, the main difference you could obviously imagine is that with CM to C, it's the same amount of value throughout. Whereas M to C to M is intended to have more money at the second M. And this more money is the essential definition of capital. So it's money that appreciates or, or money that begets money. So in M to C to M, you are getting the same use value at the end of the cycle as the start. It's still money, but the quantity changes. Instead of with C to M to C, with commodity exchange, you have the same amount of value, right? In the example before, it's the person selling their linen for a Bible. The linen and the Bible have the same amount of value. It's just that their use value is different. But of course, M to C to M and C to M to C both involve sets of purchases or sales. But importantly, when let's say the capitalist sells corn at the end, converts a commodity to money, when it leaves their hands and is replaced by money, it does something different than in basic commodity exchange when the peasant, let's say, sells corn to buy a Bible. The end of the cycle for the capitalist is more money, and the end of the cycle for the peasant is more use value. So, so capital fundamentally works based on these purchases and sales. You have to throw money into circulation as a capitalist on the expectation that later when you sell, you'll get more money. By doing this, of course, you're risking money. It's no longer in, let's say, a money hoard where it isn't appreciating at all. Obviously, of course, with M to C to M, there must be an appreciation of value in the two M's. We can call this M to C to M prime. And the difference of the price of money in the first and the second M is the appreciation of value in capital. It is the surplus value. So this is the valorization of value, or essentially meaning, you know, value's ability to increase itself. And obviously, we'll get into later how that happens. Importantly, as soon as M prime is spent as money, which means, you know, let's say it's spent for the purpose of consumption instead of for the purpose of making more money, then it stops being capital. This is because when it's being spent for consumption, it's not being spent to make more money, it's being spent for personal use values. This is why, you know, the circulation of capital has no limits because you're not buying and selling for, let's say, use values, but instead for more money. You can always make more and more money. Value can always valorize, you know. And importantly, the possessor of money in the M to C to M cycle becomes a capitalist. So it was a quote from the chapter. His person, or rather his pocket, is the point from which the money starts and to which it returns. Now, this is an important part of the social position of the capitalist for Marx. He's not necessarily using the term capitalist, you know, morally. 
Noisy claiming the capitalist is merely one who has, let's say, a lot of money. The hoarder, for instance, unlike the capitalist, does not put their money into circulation to make more. The capitalist is one who is spending money to make money. That is what allows one to inhabit the position of a capitalist. So another quote from the chapter, the expansion of value, which is the objective basis or mainspring of the circulation, MC to M, becomes his subjective aim, the capitalist. And it is only insofar as the appropriation of ever more and more wealth in the abstract becomes the sole motivation of his operation that he functions as a capitalist. That is, as capital personified and endowed with consciousness and will. We don't care about any of the subjective elements of the capitalist for the sake of this analysis. The personal wants they might have, where they might want to spend their money outside of capital accumulation itself, none of that matters. What matters is when they embody this sort of objective interest of the capitalist, that is, someone who is making money through M to C to M. The capitalist is analyzed as one who is sort of swept up in capital accumulation who is placed within, or places themselves within. The distinction in this sense doesn't matter. It matters morally speaking, of course, but who places themselves within its current to help it flow, and who benefits from this flow. So this is another element of Marx's sort of anti-moral analysis. Like you can convince individual capitalists of their compromised moral position, but it is only when the current itself is fought against that it can stop. So there will always be some who will jump into the current to help it continue. Some will even feel bad about what they do and prevent the worst of the current, in its sort of moral terms, but will continue to benefit from it. In virtue of being in that current, they will be attempting to extract surplus value. Again, the surplus value being the difference between the first M and then the last M. The M1 to C to M2, let's say. And as soon as, you know, profit is taken out of its use as capital for the purpose of human needs or consumption, then where that money is spent is not a part of the analysis of the capitalist. This is how Marx is able to, you know, make an objective analysis of capitalism and the social position of the capitalist. This social position is not necessarily inferred based on, let's say, a hoard of money. This is, again, just a, a basic element of why you see people being like, well, how, what, is, what income bracket makes you a capitalist? It, which is just absolutely missing the mark of Marx's analysis here. In M to C to M, both the money and the commodities within this equation represent value itself. The reason for this is, of course, that the change in M to C to M relates to the change in the magnitude of value. So what matters here is how much value is being transferred. Whereas again, with regular commodity exchange, C to M to C, what matters is the change in the use value. And the value changes here without becoming lost. It can go from mo the money form to commodities back to money, while always retaining and, of course, also increasing the amount of value that it has. So capital is able to move to and fro between money and commodities because both money and commodities have common value. This is the same substance that is within capital increasing. This is the valorization of value. Value making more value. Value is, of course, also necessarily in process or motion. So as we talked about before, it must be spent and then sold to appreciate. Value does not appreciate when it's just merely in a hoard. So the last sort of notes for chapter four being again that money that begets money is the basic definition of capital. 
This even existed before the capitalist system, generally in the form of like usurers and merchants, for instance, who are of course capitalists. They have money and it is being turned into more money. You know, the merchant buys a commodity, usually moves it somewhere else and sells it for more. Or maybe the merchant has like a monopoly on selling the commodity, in which case they're able to make some money out of it. But what Marx is fundamentally interested in is the industrial capitalist. The industrial capitalist is where value is created. And I think it should be pretty obvious at this point exactly, or not exactly, but relatively why that is the case. So on to chapter five, which is again, just a continuation of the thought so far. Uh, M to C to M is importantly different to commodity circulation at the level of its form, which is again, sort of what I said before. If all there was of the story was a capitalist buying a commodity from person A, you know, who's selling it, and then selling it to person B, someone who's buying it, why would A not just directly sell to B, right? As I mentioned before, with some merchant capitalists, this is most certainly a valid question to ask. But again, merchant capitalists are not the ones who produce value. So this level of analysis does not tell us where value comes from and, and how more value is made, how value is valorized. So there must be something more to the picture than simply this. So chapter five relates to Marx analyzing the source of surplus value and where it comes from. Again, analyzed by itself, M to C and then C to M prime would seemingly necessarily involve an unequal exchange of sorts if it was only related to the market and to the laws of the market. But this sort of, you know, contradicts the laws of exchange and money and value as we have discussed before. So if this was the whole story, then it seems as if value could not be made here. And the only way to get more money in the second M from M to C to M would be to, let's say, sell at a higher price or buy at a lower price. But flipping things, which is essentially what this is, is of course just a redistribution of value. So it's not its beginning point. It's just the person who's better at flipping has more value. The person who isn't, so on the, the raw end of the deal, has less value. And this is, of course, not how a class division could possibly pop up, you know, between people who are able to flip and people who are not, or between people who sell and are able to sell at higher and people who buy, who are able to buy at lower. So something is going on in the background of exchange that must produce surplus value. It can't be exchange itself as we have analyzed it. And so now we move on to chapter six, where Marx attempts to start analyzing the question. In M to C to M prime, the change in value must essentially happen at the point of C, the commodity, somewhere in the commodity. But of course, not in the commodity's mere purchase, as that is the same amount of value as M, and therefore could not possibly create more M during M prime. So the commodity changes value in some other way not related directly to exchange, so in how it's consumed or how it's physically altered. Since it can't be through exchange, logically, it must be through use value, some alteration of use values. And now here's a quote. Money bags must be so lucky as to find, within the sphere of circulation, in the market, a commodity whose use value possesses the peculiar property of being a source of value, whose actual consumption, therefore, is itself an embodiment of labor, and, consequently, a creation of value. But of course, this special commodity that creates value is labor power or the capacity to labor. 
So the capitalist signs a contract with the laborer based on their capacity to labor. And the value is produced in their realized labor power, the concrete physical alterations of commodities that the laborer does. Labor power is defined in the chapter as, quote, the aggregate of those mental and physical capabilities existing in a human being, which he exercises whenever he produces a use value of any description, unquote. So labor power is, of course, a use value, and it has a cost, so it's a commodity. Importantly, wealth or use values in general, I think I mentioned this before, are importantly not created by labor itself, but by nature. And human labor power is a part of nature. Right? It's an important distinction, because to say labor creates everything of value, using value in the sort of unqualified sense, just generally things that are valuable, is obviously incorrect. I think maybe there's a sort of vulgar understanding of Marx where he's arguing that labor creates all use values. Of course, this is just obviously not true. Human labor in its concrete sense comes from nature because we are a part of nature. So this labor power, or this capacity to labor, is a commodity that is bought up by the capitalist. And this commodity is a part of capital, of course, because it's a part of M to C to M. It is variable capital, but Marx gets into this in a later chapter. Remember, the capitalist, by definition, is making money through spending it and then selling whatever he's bought. So he makes his surplus value by buying human labor capacity as a commodity. This, importantly, can only be possible, you know, labor can only be bought up as a commodity if there are those who are willing to sell their labor. And there are essentially three main conditions for this. The worker must be free, as Marx says, in two senses, firstly. They must be free both in the legal sense, that they are able to enter into a contract, and free of any other capacity to make subsistence other than to simply sell their labor. So the conditions in which they are free in, you know, both of these senses are not natural. The development of this, where you had this surplus of sort of doubly free labor, as well as money that wanted to buy it up, is a historically contingent situation. I can talk about that more in the, the premium episode. But you must also, of course, have a condition in which, we must also, of course, have a condition in which there is money that wishes to buy labor. So the laborer, in virtue of just simply selling their ability to labor, must be unable to sell commodities on the market to make subsistence or they must be unable to make subsistence not related to the value form or to buying commodities. Because if they could do either of these things, they would obviously do those things instead. They are as a result of unnatural or historically contingent phenomena denied the means of producing commodities themselves. So, you know, they do not own the means of production or a means of production. All the laborer has is their living self to sell for their subsistence. It should be very obvious exactly how labor is a commodity that can be bought and that has a price, you know, given Marx's sort of explanation of the value form thus far. But importantly, the price of labor is different than the surplus value that labor produces. So the price of labor is instead the wage provided to the laborer. So this price relates to the socially necessary labor time of the maintenance of that labor. So the amount of money required for the laborer to buy their subsistence, because of course, they are human beings with basic wants and needs. So the cost of labor power is the subsistence of the laborer, or how much socially necessary labor time it costs to make the things that they you know, buy to eat, the clothes that they wear, the house that they live in, etc. 
And I'll get into more of, I guess, some of the more intimate details related to that in the premium. But basically, the value of labor is in a roundabout way based upon labor costs, the replenishing of the individual, the cost of their skill. So if, so if their specialized skill costs a certain amount to train, then the labor itself will cost more. And also, you know, the replenishing of them as a laborer after their death, so the raising of their children. And it is also, of course, historically contingent for a multitude of reasons. Firstly, based on the cost of commodities needed for subsistence. So if the value of commodities required to make subsistence are much lower, then the cost of wages will go down. And it is also morally contingent. So, and I guess I'll go more into this in the premium, but what does the worker really need is not an objective question in a certain sense. But now we're sort of beginning to understand capital, the M to C to M relationship. The capitalist, Marx again calls him money bags here, buys the labor power of the free in the double sense of free, you know, free from ownership of the means of production and legal freedom, labor. This consensual contractual agreement happens in the sunlit market. They then leave the market and then the real magic happens. None of what goes on here can be seen purely in the MCM relationship that we have analyzed so far, or in commodity exchange as we have analyzed it so far. To understand the process of valorization, how value makes more value, we must head down into the dark depths of the factory in a way that we have not done so far, a way that many classical political economists, for instance, take for granted. And by taking this for granted, for instance, they can claim that the employer-employee contract is free and consensual. And I'll develop that idea more on the premium. Uh, this will conclude the free elements. I wanted to make this perfectly sort of legible so you don't have to listen to the premium and you still get sort of a general and relatively quick understanding of the chapter and just an overview of it. This is obviously not a replacement for reading capital. I think it, it more also helps if you are reading capital to show you what to sort of look out for the general arguments and understanding them more in depth in Marx's own words, but I'll go more into specifically the cost of labor as well as the valorization process in the premium episode on patreon.com slash for $2 a month. Thank you to Corey, Please Don't Fire Us, and Sierra for supporting me on Patreon, and I will see you all next week.